0: Alright, so uh, again, we just want to celebrate all the wonderful things that God is doing in our community. Uh, At this time, I just want to shift our attention to our sermon series. And we are going to continue on in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And one of the interesting things I find about our culture um, is this emphasis on depending upon ourselves. So if you ever heard an interview from a celebrity, whether it is a famous actor or actress or an athlete... Or Whatever and you give them an opportunity to say something inspirational because they understand that they have a great platform There are many youths who look up to them Pretty much every single one of these celebrities. They're gonna say something like believe in yourself You can do it. I mean if you even think about Nike's slogan, which is still very resonating even today Just do it and the assumption is that there's something within us that enables us to overcome adversity There's something within us that enables us to grow, to become a better version of ourselves tomorrow. All we have to do is put in the hours in the gym. All we have to do is put in the hours in the film room for athletes. All we have to do is put in the hours of working on our craft, whether it is something like acting or whatever field or industry it is. The underlying sentiment is if we believe in ourselves then tomorrow we can experience a better version of ourselves, we can grow, and we can maybe accomplish and fulfill some of the dreams that we have in our hearts. We hear this not only from celebrities, but we see this in movies, especially children's movies, Disney movies. It all talks about how there is this inner potential that we just need to unlock, and then we will be able to experience and fulfill all the wonderful goals and lofty standards that we have for our lives. And as inspirational as that is, and as much as that makes us feel pretty good about ourselves, it's actually so untrue. It is biblically false. As we've been seeing throughout the sermon series, uh, I think it was over the summer when we did the sermon on Ezekiel chapter 36, how there really is no inherent good in us. Uh, We are actually sinners. Our default disposition is to shut God away from our lives. To distort, suppress, reject, ignore his character and his involvement in our lives. That is our default position. There is nothing good inherently in us. And that is why as we sang, as our sister Susan and the rest of the band led us, they reminded us that God had to intervene. He had to send his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on that cross, to resurrect. So that now, that even though we don't have any inherent good, God has given us his new heart, his new spirit, so now we can grow in faith and to be able to live godly lives, lives that conform to the image of Jesus Christ. So when we think about the gospel and when we think about what God had to do, the fact that Jesus Christ had to come to us is an act of grace, something that we could have never accomplished on our own, counter to what all these celebrities say when they say, believe in yourself. Just do it. No, we can't just believe in ourselves. We can't just do it. We need Jesus. We need Him to invade. But we also looked at the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Not only is it an act of grace that God had to come down to us and die our death, but it's also an act of grace that we can actually look at the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and respond appropriately, respond with a heart of repentance and a heart of faith. Because even though Jesus died for us, even though Jesus resurrected on our behalf, we cannot appropriately understand, submit, believe in that truth unless the Holy Spirit works in our lives. We saw this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where because God chose us and loved us, because we are now in Christ, because the Holy Spirit is working in us, giving us a heart of conviction, when we think about the gospel and the death and resurrection of Jesus, It is only by God's grace that we can appropriately respond to the gospel. So not only is the gospel an act of God's grace, not only is our ability to respond to the gospel an act of God's grace, but what we're going to see today is our ability to grow in the gospel, our ability to grow to become more like Jesus, our ability for our faith and our love to grow, all these things for us to walk in what the gospel has opened up for us. All those things, we are also so dependent upon God's grace. From start to finish, not only is he the author of our faith, but he is indeed the perfecter of our faith. Everything from start to finish and everything in between is so dependent upon God intervening in our hearts. God is the one who carries us through. And we're going to see all of this in this uh, short prayer that Paul prays for the Thessalonians. And I think this is also a very incredible encouragement for many of us. Because as I've been walking with some of you guys, and as people have been reaching out to me, one of the things I hear all the time is, Pastor Yah, how can I grow in my faith? Pastor Yah, how can I take the Gospel more seriously? Pastor Yah, how can I trust God more? How can I love God more? What do I need to do? And in some ways, I love that question because it shows that you're hungry. It shows that you take the gospel seriously. But in some ways, that question is actually wrong because it's not so much what we do, but it's more the main character is what God is doing. He is the one who is ultimately responsible for making you, your fragile faith, your fickleness of love, The way that you compromise, He is the one who's going to perfect that. He is the one that's going to make your heart become more like Jesus. And it's the more we understand that and get our eyes off of ourselves, our own inadequacies, our own failures, and look to God and His promises and what He will do. The more we are able to do that, the more we will actually organically grow in our faith, become more like Jesus Christ. So that's why the title of this sermon is The Author and Perfector. He is not only the beginner, he is not only the completer, but everything in between. We are so utterly dependent upon the grace of God. It's a marvelous thing, but it's also very humbling. So we're going to take a look into this. Uh, If you haven't been with us in the sermon series, where we last left off is Paul is talking to the Thessalonians about how he is so encouraged that their faith is still strong. Because he was really worried. But at the same time, Paul recognizes that the Thessalonians, they're not in an ideal situation. Their faith is still being attacked. Their faith still needs to be established. They still feel vulnerable, fragile. They still have questions. There are still some problems in the community. Um, And we're going to look at that. And in some ways, it's very encouraging to us. Because the way I, I just described the Thessalonians, I think, can relate with all of us. We, many of us, feel very vulnerable in our faith. Many of us, we feel very isolated, especially with a pandemic. Many of us, we are struggling with different things. Many of us, we are experiencing confusion in our relationship with God or even in the ways that we look at life. And Paul, it prays this one prayer that I think can also be very relevant to us as well. It's only three verses, so let me read it in its entirety first and then we'll break it down. So this is a prayer that Paul prays for the Thessalonians. Now may Our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Because Paul, Savannah, and Timothy, they're separated. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Very short prayer, three verses, but man, it is Loaded, it's very dense and we're going to break it down And Paul is essentially praying for three things But we're only going to focus on two things The first thing that Paul prays for is that Paul, Savannah, and Timothy That they can somehow make their way to the Thessalonians Because as we mentioned over the past few chapters Paul feels very burdened for the Thessalonians He has a heart of a father, heart of a nursing mother So the first thing that he prays for is I just want to make sure that we can somehow be with you physically and in some ways, I feel like it's very similar to the tension that we're experiencing, especially in the midst of the pandemic. But the focus of this sermon is not that. But the focus of this sermon is the other two things that Paul prays for, and it's gonna be <coughs> very helpful for us. Um, Paul says that not only can we can God make us direct our way to you, but Paul also says that your that your love. May increase and abound. That's the second thing he prays for. Is your love needs to increase and abound. (coughs) In some ways, we're not too surprised by this. (coughs) Because Jesus himself says, a new command I give you. Love one another and by your love, the whole world will know that you are my disciples. Uh, In some ways, this is something that Christians should be known for. Love. Love. And when we look at a passage like this, we might be tempted to interpret this wrongly. Some of us may think, okay, I need to be more loving. Christians, we have a bad name for ourselves. Christians are associated to political affairs and issues and whatever. But Christians, we need to be known for love. I need to be more loving. That's one way that we can take a look at this passage and we may apply it. And let me tell you, that's actually the wrong application. The other thing that Paul prays for is that our hearts will be blameless in holiness. And again, this is another thing that Christians are known for. And we may misinterpret this and misapply this and think, okay, I need to be more holy. I need to be more blameless. Uh, Especially during the pandemic, there have been a lot of societal, cultural trends. One of the trends is the increased rate of pornography. And it's not that surprising. We live isolated lives. We, just the way that our lives are now, we're able to do things and dabble into things. And one of the things that Paul addresses for the Thessalonians that we see in the next chapter is they are struggling with sexual immorality. And blameless in holiness, however, is not just about sexual in the sexual realm. It's just anything that enables us to truly be holy before God where we are sanctified before God, that our lives, our minds, our thoughts, as our brother Hugh prayed, everything, our actions, our feelings, our emotions, everything that is within us, it is sanctified, it is dedicated for God's purpose, and therefore it is holy. When the Bible says blameless, it's just another way of saying you are flawless. There is no mistakes, there's no problems in your life. And we may look at this and we may misapply this and think, okay, I need to be much more holy. I need to be much more blameless, uh, whether it's sexual things, whether it's my thought life, whether it's gossip in our speech, whether it's materialism, whether it's covetousness, all these different things. I don't want to just pinpoint sexual immorality, but that really is what we're going to see in the next chapter that Paul is referring to. But it could be anything. And if you notice, um, in Leviticus, God says, be holy as I am holy. In 1 Peter, it repeats that, be holy as I am holy. And for some of us, we may look at this verse and feel a lot of burden. God, I need to be holier, but how can I be holy? Even the New Testament, it talks about saints. It talks about Christians. The way Christians are identified is the word saints. And if you know the Greek behind saints, it's actually from the word holy. Literally, it is not saints, but it is the holy ones. We are considered holy ones. We're supposed to be holy. And again, when we think of this passage, we might have the temptation to completely misinterpret, misapply it, and think, okay, I guess I need to be more loving. I need to be more patient to my spouse, to my children, to my coworkers. I also need to be more blameless and holy. So I need to have more accountability partners. I need to make sure that I'm more disciplined in my thought life, in my speech, in the things that I see. But that's really not the point of Paul's prayer. We're gonna talk about this a little bit more next week where Paul talks about how you need to take responsibility over these two areas. But in this prayer, do you notice who is the one that enables the Thessalonians to increase and abound in love? Who? Is it themselves? In this prayer, who is the one that is able to be established so that they can be blameless in holiness? Is it the Thessalonians that they need to be more disciplined and have more accountability partners? No, as we will see in highlight, verse 12, it says, May the Lord make you. It's not, may you make yourselves. It's, may the Lord make you grow and abound in love. Verse 13, so that he, which is referring to God, that God is the one who may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Well, Paul is essentially saying, is when I pray for you, I'm not just praying that the Thessalonians will increase and abound in love and become more holy and blameless because they are struggling in sexual immorality and there are problems where they're not really loving each other as we're going to see next week in chapter 4. But what Paul is saying is, my hope is not in you, in the Thessalonians, in your own ability. It's not just do it. It's not just believe in yourself and unlock your internal potential. What Paul recognizes is, God needs to be the one who increases and abounds your love. God needs to be the one who establishes your heart to be blameless in holiness. From start to finish, the author and perfecter, from the fact that God sent his one and only son to die for us, which is an act of grace, the fact that the Holy Spirit needs to awaken our minds so that we can appropriately respond to the gospel, another act of grace, now we see another yet act of grace where our ability to grow, And to apply the principles of the gospel. For our faith, our love to increase and abound. For us to be able to be holy and blameless. All these things that God requires Christians to do. Even those things are not based on ourselves. Even those things must be accomplished, fulfilled, completed on our behalf by God. And that is why Paul says, May the Lord make you. May the Lord establish your heart. Because as much as Paul loves the Thessalonians, and we saw in the first chapter, their faith is very inspirational. Everybody hears of the ways that they've been responding to the gospel, how they've been overcoming persecution. They are ideal Christians. And yet Paul recognizes, as much as I love you, as much as your faith has been exemplary, your only hope is what God can fulfill and accomplish on your behalf. And what does that mean for us? Because for us, if we're honest with ourselves, take a moment to no more pretensions, no more sugarcoating, no more fronting, just look at the mirror. Our faith is fragile. Our love is fickle. Our devotions to God, they don't, they're not that impressive. Our ability to grow and to become more like Jesus, we feel like maybe some of us were backsliding. Maybe some of us were slipping. Maybe some of us, we feel like, I don't know if I can make it. I think I'm just gonna live my life however, because all this Christian stuff is just causing me stress, and I just want to wake up one day and hope that I'm just at the pearly gates because this life is too difficult. I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us feel similarly to that. And what this passage is saying, and what I believe the Holy Spirit wants to remind our congregation, is yes, when you place your eyes on yourself, when you place your eyes on the situation, yet it is bleak, it is difficult, it is very discouraging when you think that you can just do it, when you think that you have inner potential, I'm sorry to break the news, but no, that's not the case. But what the Holy Spirit, I believe, is trying to impress upon our hearts is look to God. Look to Jesus. He is not only the author of our faith who came down to us while we were still yet enemies, but He's also the perfecter. He is the one that will enable us to grow. You know, when I think about my life and the seasons where I felt like I experienced tremendous growth, it's always seasons where at the time I felt like I was backsliding. Always at the time I felt like my life was in complete chaos. It's only in hindsight when I look back on my life do I recognize, wow. God used that time to make me more like Jesus, but during the time it was so painful. Frustration, complaint, feeling like God was distant, feeling like God abandoned me. And We see that not only in our own personal testimonies, but even throughout scripture. How did Moses grow? He had to wander in the desert for 40 years. How did Israel grow? Wander in the desert for 40 years as well. How did David grow? He had to run away from Saul. He had to run away from Absalom. We see this. It's a pretty biblical pattern and it's something that we need to be reminded of. Because when we think about growing in the gospel, growing in our faith, having our love increase, abound, becoming more holy and blameless, it's never through the ways that we think, it's never through the comforts of hearing a wonderful sermon, going to an inspirational retreat, going to a very passion-driven missions trip, and all of a sudden, boom, we take two or three steps to become more like Jesus. That's not how it works. The way God typically grows us is through difficulties, is through moments where we recognize that the only reason why I am growing and taking these steps is because of God's grace, not myself. You know, I share bits and pieces here, but when we first moved to Toronto, I mean, we're from Philadelphia, we moved maybe four or five years ago. Man, that was just a nightmare of an experience. Um, From a financial standpoint, there are a lot of unavoidable and unforeseen setbacks. As a dad, as a husband, I felt like I completely let my wife and children down. I felt like I was leading them to just a disastrous life. Uh, Even in my own academic work, part of the reason why we moved was for me to begin my PhD studies and research. And even there, um, there were just a lot of, I guess my expectations were a little unrealistic. And it just, it really, I just think mentally, I wasn't, and emotionally, I wasn't ready for that type of disappointment. And to make a long story short, there was probably a good year where I fell into depression, where I entertained really harmful thoughts, thinking, does God even exist? Um, And all along, from a young age, I always knew that God had called me to become a pastor. But during this time, those things weren't even on my mind. At first, I was thinking, how can I be a pastor if my heart is this fragile? But afterwards, I was thinking, does God even exist? I mean, it was a very low point in my life. And this wasn't just a few weeks or a few months. This stretched probably a year and a half. And the reason why I share this is because during that time, I felt like there's no way. Like, it's not even a matter of becoming a pastor or whatever to be useful in God's kingdom. There, there's no way that I'm even a Christian. I'm too weak. And I just felt like I don't care how my life transpires. Everything is just meaningless. And in hindsight, I realized God is the one who carried me. God is the one Who was able to allow me to continue to hang on? Left to myself, I would have, I don't know what would have happened. And it was also during that experience where I feel like God really prepared and trained me to be a minister of the gospel. I mean, when you look at myself, yes, I have an MDiv degree, yes, I have a ton of years of experience in pastoral ministry, all these different things. Doing children's ministry, band, small group, discipleship, mentorship, admin, just the whole nine yards. And yes, in some ways, I felt like I have all the experience. Ministry experience, life experience, having kids, work experience. I've worked so I can relate with people who work. But what I recognize that enables me to be a much more fitting minister of the gospel what God actually used to increase and abound my love. What God actually used to establish my blameless heart. I'm not saying I'm blameless. I'm just using these words. So don't, don't take that the wrong way. What God really used was never the end of training. The work experience that I thought would be so useful in ministry. All the ministry experiences that I thought would really set me up. What God actually used was that year and a half. Of that dark period. Where yes. There's a lot of bitterness. There's a lot of. Scars. That even when I think back on it. I still get an emotional reaction. And I realized that God used that. Not all the other things that you would put on a CV or a resume. But God used that dark period where I really had no faith, where I definitely did not have the strength to carry on, she was the one who not only carried me, but he was the one who used that to make me much more sensitive, empathetic to the struggles that I hear on a weekly basis from those even within our uptown community. And the reason why I share that is because I think for many of us, when we are experiencing desert period, dry times, where you feel like you're backsliding, whatever you're experiencing, I wanna remind you, the Spirit is the one who will make you increase and abound in love. The Spirit, God, Jesus, is the one who established your blameless heart in holiness. He is the one who will refine your faith. And yes, at the moment, You feel like God is distant. At the moment, everything seems chaotic. You can't make sense of the situation. But like I mentioned, it's so funny. That's always the way it is. It's always in hindsight where we recognize when we look back on that period of utter confusion, that is where God not only carried me, but that is where God made me more like Jesus. Because again, not only is the author of our faith, not only did he begin, but he is the perfecter. He will finish the thing that he started because he is so committed. He is that promise keeper. I love that first song, that, uh, the second song that Susan led us. So true throughout the ages. His track record is flawless. So yes, when you look at yourself, the future does not look very optimistic. But when you look at God, The future is in the bag. He is that faithful promise keeper. Um, You know, another interesting thing about these short verses about God, uh, Paul's prayer, is when is everything finally fulfilled? All of us, we live this tense life where we're just wondering, you know, am I making the most of life? Especially in this pandemic where every day feels the same. Feels like we're living in Groundhog's Day. Um, when will this be fulfilled where my love will increase and abound, where God will establish my heart in blameless holiness is Paul says at the coming before God, this will happen before him in his presence and at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Um, You know, right now in the here and now, in this present day and age, it is difficult. And I'm going to tease out some implications on what we can do for the today, for the here and now. But Paul is saying that when will we finally become like Jesus? When will our faith finally be perfectly refined? When will our love finally be abounding the way it was meant to be? When will we truly live a holy, blameless life the way God initially designed is before God at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Jesus will return. For the biblical writers, they thought it could be any day. And that was 2,000 years ago. How much more for us should we have a sense of imminence and urgency? And when we think about the return of Jesus, there are many different ways that uh, the Bible describes the return of Jesus. It talks about it as a thief. Breaking into a house at night. That's a very biblical metaphor. And it conveys a sense of urgency. That we don't know when it's going to be. So be on guard. There's also the metaphor of Jesus is going to return as a judge. And we see this in, especially in the book of Revelation. Where he is the rider on the white horse. And he is going to make account for every human that has ever lived on this world. He's going to be a judge. He's, vengeance is his He's going to make recompense For all the deeds Everything that has ever happened There's another metaphor That the Bible uses That I think is more appropriate for this When we think about the language of Holiness, blamelessness Love is There is an analogy That Jesus' return Is going to be like a wedding celebration We see this In the second to last chapter of the entire Bible, Revelation chapter 21. And the idea is that at this wedding is going to be a wedding between the groom, who is the son, Jesus Christ, and the bride, who is the precious church that we are a part of. And that's the reason why when we did uh, our sermon series on 1 Corinthians, I emphasized as much as you need to submit to the gospel, you also need to be plugged in to a church community. Because biblically speaking, the church is so important. Um, And just as a tangent, I'm really encouraged even with our membership classes we just finished yesterday. It's great to see some of the individuals at Uptown. And I can't wait to be able to introduce some of the new members to our congregation But all this to say is church is supremely important. So this wedding, when Jesus comes back, when everything is going to be finally made perfect, it is a wedding between Jesus the groom and the bride of church that all of us should be a part of, whether it's a local church here or whatever. And it's going to be a glorious celebration. It's going to be something that we all look forward to. But do you know how the bride is described throughout scripture? Other than at the wedding celebration? The bride is described, especially in the Old Testament prophets. You can look at Jeremiah. You can look at Hosea. The bride is depicted not as a beautiful bride who is holy and blameless, who is abounding and increasing in love. The bride is actually described as a whore. I said it, whore. Prostitute, a she-camel, is what Jeremiah says. The bride, us, the people of God, until we see Jesus at that wedding celebration, at his return, we are described as people who our faith is so fragile. We are so rebellious. We cannot help but to give ourselves to other lovers, even though our God has been so faithful to us. That is a state of our heart. And then, like I mentioned earlier, God intervened. He intervened through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He gave us a white, clean slate. So all of that she camel all of that promiscuity, all of that rebelliousness, that wickedness that we have been committing, all that has been wiped clean. And not only that, but God has given us a new spirit. And like I mentioned, Ezekiel chapter 36, he didn't just do a heart. Uh, repair but a heart transplant he gave us his very own spirit so no longer is our identity a prostitute a she camel, a whore before god but even though that is not our identity we still have whore-like tendencies if that is the way we have been living all our life then those habits they don't die off easily we still live lies that our faith our love Our devotion to God is still fickle. And the Bible describes that as sin. And if you want to be more graphic about it, cause it very whore-like tendencies. And yes, we're going to struggle with this until we see Jesus face to face. And we're going to grow progressively. And that's why I emphasize baby steps. One baby step at a time, we are shedding away those she-camel-like tendencies. And we are becoming more and more like the bride. Simply because of what God is doing He is the one who is increasing and abounding our love He is the one who is establishing our hearts And at this wedding celebration we get a glimpse of this And I can't preach a sermon on this, I wish I could But let me just read Revelation 21, just a few verses On how the bride is finally described From a she-camel who couldn't help but to give herself to every lover To now, let's take a look Revelation 21, the angel said, uh, John says, and I saw what? The holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This bride, us being part of the church, we are decked out, we are adorned, we are finally presentable before the groom Jesus. Then came one of the seven angels saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Do you sense the excitement? The angel isn't ashamed thinking, oh my goodness, the bride is a she-camel. And what are we going to do? Can we put some more makeup? No, the angels, the heavenly beings are so proud. And they are so excited to showcase how beautiful, how holy, how blameless, how loving the bride, us, how we are. Before the groom. And the angel carried me in the spirit to a great high mountain. Because again, God wants to showcase this bride to all the world. Not just to some, to a high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Again, we are bona fide, legit, holy at this point. Coming down out of heaven from God. I wish I could preach on this. The description and details are even, even more overwhelming and breathtaking. But all of this to say is Jesus. He is not only the author of our faith, he is the perfecter. And yes, right now, there may be moments where God exposes our she-camel-whore-like tendencies. But God is also reminding us, don't focus on yourself. Don't focus on the situation. Trust my word. Trust in the fact that what I begin, I will complete. That I am the one who will increase and abound your love. I am the one who will establish your heart so that it can be holy and blameless. Why? Because God the Father is so committed to glorifying God the Son that He will do whatever it takes to beautify the bride through the power of God the Spirit. Let me repeat that again because it's important. God is committed to you not because you have this inherent potential that needs to be unlocked. It's not because you walked down the altar call. It's not because you went on that missions trip. It's not because of the fact that you tithe. God is committed to making this a reality in your life because God the Father is committed to glorifying, not you, God the Son. Therefore, He is going to do whatever it takes to beautify the bride, which is us, through the power of God the Spirit. It is because He is that faithful promise keeper. It is because He is so committed to glorifying Himself. It is because He loves the Son so much that we are the indirect recipients that we get to be a part of this greater story where, yes, we will be identified as that loving, holy, blameless, pure, spotless bride. And even though God is the one who essentially did all the work, God will give us crowns. God will say, well done, my good and faithful servant, as if we did it. God is just, his love is just amazing. It carries us, but at the same time, he still wants to glorify us. So what does this mean for the here and now? Uh, When I think about weddings, I think about my own wedding, of course. (laughs) Um, And when I think about my own wedding, maybe I'll talk about this next week. I think it'll be a little bit more applicable. Um, I think about man our, our engagement, Jeannie and myself, uh, it was like a mini Korean drama series because um, you know there was some relational conflict with the in-laws. and um, to make a long story short, when I thought about the wedding ceremony, as a guy I don't care too much. Um, but as you know, as my w- you know my wife, the bride, that's like her dream thing. And as much as you know, she had all these hopes and the way that she envisioned what her wedding celebration would be like. uh, Her parents had very strong opinions on what it should be like. And you there was some tension and I just kept saying, you know what, let's just do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. If your mom wants this, X, Y, and Z, whatever. If she wants me to suit up in a clown outfit, I'll do that. If she wants me to do this, I'll gladly do it. I'll put up with anything because on our wedding day, was it an hour of ceremony, maybe four or five hours of the dinner reception? During that five hours, it'll be all worth it. Let's just put up with anything and everything because that, those five hours, yes, like we may not have the things that we want according to our preference, but we are going to be finally married, officially, one in flesh. Let's just do whatever they want us to do and... It doesn't matter and in some ways I feel like that mentality should be our mentality even today is yes all of us we're gonna go through heartache all of us there is this tense ferocious war within our hearts the she camel sinful like tendencies versus what the Holy Spirit is trying to do to make us more like Jesus Obviously, it's not like this. It's like this because the spirit is stronger and we have a new heart. But there's still, the tension is still there. I mean, Romans chapter 7, if you don't believe me. There is going to be circumstantially a lot of difficulties because we live in a sin-ravaged world where things don't work out fairly, justly. There's a lot of evil in this world that we are afflicted by. Now until we see Jesus, we're going to have to put up with a lot of things that go against our preference. But unlike my example, where it's worth it because of those five hours, it's going to be completely worth it. When Jesus comes back, you recognize that it's not just a five-hour celebration. It is for all of eternity. Yes, our lives and our pain may seem very difficult to overcome. But in really the grand eternal scheme of things, God These things don't compare at all. And therefore, I feel like one of the things that we need to do more is we need to start thinking more about the return of Jesus. Because when we think about the return of Jesus, it does a lot of things. But one of the things that it does is it does give us an eternal perspective. It puts our daily difficulties, and I don't want to sweep them under the rug. I know it's painful, but it puts them in its rightful context. So that it gives us the hope, the fortitude, the courage, the right perspective so that we can endure until we see Jesus face to face. Uh, So what do we do with a sermon like this? Because some of it just seems very futuristic or whatever. Uh, Hopefully my example that I shared when I first moved to Toronto, hopefully that can be very relevant for some of us. Because maybe you are experiencing a difficult season like that right now. Be encouraged. God is in your midst. He is involved. He is doing something beautiful. He is using this to become more like son, to become more like His Son Jesus. But some other ways of having some everyday implications is it really boils down to having a heart that is repentant and that is trusting. Uh, for some of us who are part of our discipleship team, uh, I've been reading some of your responses of the book that we're reading. And wow, um, I'm just so happy. I'm so encouraged by your responses because many of you guys, you emphasize these two points. And it's great because these are the two points that are truly the bread and butter way of responding to the gospel. Repentance and trust or faith. And some implications is we need now until we see Jesus, we need to grow in our repentant mentality. And some specific ways is you cannot grow on your own. You just cannot. And one of the things I think we need to come to the harsh reality is, yes, we cannot shed our sinful, whore-like tendencies apart from what God can do. And that's why Paul prays that God is the one who can increase, abound, and establish. And for many of us, I am encouraged that we do take our relationship with God seriously. But we need to take a step back and, and be reminded There's nothing that we can do to grow on our own. We are utterly dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think for some of us who get burnt out, who feel like we're frustrated in our lack of growth, I think it's because we'll never say it with our lips, but the ways that we're living our lives, it's as if we can grow on our own. We need to repent. And repentance is not... You know, you have a timeout. This means that as we repent that we cannot grow on our own. What does this do? It leads us to the glorious truth that God is the one who's going to grow us. And that's such a liberating, joyful, blissful, overwhelming blessing that can only be unlocked when we repent. Simply, we cannot grow on our own. Another thing that we can repent is you often take his grace as an excuse for his complacency. I know what some of us are thinking. If God is the one who's going to grow us, if God is the one who's going to make me into a beautiful bride, then you know what? I'm going to be complacent in my life because he's the author, perfecter from beginning to end. I can just kick back. No, as we're going to see in next chapter, in chapter 4, that is not the way Paul takes this. Because God is the one who is working in our hearts, it gives us greater urgency to be cooperative with what God is trying to do in our lives. Oftentimes, we distort God's character and His involvement. We can distort this wonderful truth as well as an excuse to be complacent and lazy in our spiritual life. We need to repent for that. Another thing that we can repent of is that you rely on yourself instead of depending on Him. Uh, I guess this is very similar to the first one. But many times, what we end up doing is we depend upon ourselves. We think that if we have enough accountability partners, and again, accountability partners are a glorious thing. I don't want to discourage you from doing that. But we think that if we can take matters into our own hands, but no, every time we come before God, whether it's a Sunday worship service, whether it's a quiet time, whether it's a small group gathering, you need to repent and say, God, forgive me for my tendency to depend upon myself. Forgive me for my tendency to not be utterly dependent upon you. Whatever happens during this devotion or whatever, I need your Holy Spirit to invade, to penetrate into my heart. Not only does the gospel call us to repent, but the gospel also calls us to trust and to place our faith in God. Some areas is your hope is not in this life. Trust that. Yes, I I think in our congregation, not to, hopefully this doesn't sound insensitive, but many of us, we are living very successful lives. I mean, when you think about it from a global scale. Uh, Yes, maybe you're not at the position that you want, but the fact that you're educated, the fact that you have a house to live in, the fact that you have the ability to pay for your expenses, we are living, by and large, very comfortable, luxurious lives in comparison to the rest of human history. A lot of us, we are experiencing a lot of success in our vocations. A lot of us are experiencing a lot of joys in bringing up our family, children, relationships, whatever. A lot of us are experiencing a lot of great things that this life has to offer. Therefore, it's a grave warning. Your hope is not in any of those things. Your hope is in when Jesus comes back, that wedding celebration. And a lot of times when we fall into depression, discouragement, Anxiety is because our hope has been in these things. If our hope is in that, that is secure, that is guaranteed, then will anything ever overwhelm us? Will anything ever move us, trouble us? No, of course not. Because our anger, our hope has always been in Christ and Christ alone. It is when we go through periods of bitterness, frustration, discouragement. Those are the moments that God exposes. Our hope has not been in Jesus. Our hope has been in these silly mud pies, this silly rat race. And we need to trust our hope is not in these things. It's in in what Jesus is going to do. Another thing that we can increase our trust and faith, asking the Holy Spirit, help me to grow in trust, is His grace is stronger than our struggles. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, I think many of us are being exposed we are recognizing how limited our faith is, trust that His grace is stronger. His grace wasn't just there when He sent Jesus to rescue you. His grace wasn't just there when He enabled you to be able to respond appropriately. But His grace is present and just as much needed right now in the midst of your failures, in the midst of your addictions, in the midst of you feeling like your life is just haywire. His grace is stronger than those things. What he began, he will complete. Trust in that. Ask the Holy Spirit, increase my faith so I know that his grace is stronger than my struggles and failures. And the upcoming joy will be worth it. The upcoming joy will be worth it. Ask the Holy Spirit, give me greater faith and trust because the tendency is, you know what, maybe the joy is not worth it. Maybe that's, that's something that's Ah, it's just too far into the distant future. But like I mentioned, even with my silly example, those five hours I knew would be worth it. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you trust that the joy that maybe we cannot experience in this lifetime, it's okay. Because there is a joy that is reserved, that is unshakable, that is promise-guaranteed. And it will be worth it. Uh, at this time, we're going to go into a time of response. And um, you know, as you notice in our YouTube video, there is a phone number. If you have any prayer requests, anything that you want to pray for yourself or even for our congregation or any questions that you have, we look at this as a way for us to respond to what the Holy Spirit is trying to speak to us through this passage. So I do want to give us an opportunity to do that. If you want to text away any messages, I also want to turn our attention to our offering because another way of responding to God's word to us is by offering our lives. And here it is in the context of financial ties, but finances are also very symbolic and representative of not just dollars and cents, but our heart, our devotion. And the way we're doing that these days is through that link. Um, so I do want to refer us to not only that link, but to also the phone number. And the phone number, all those messages are anonymous. So at this time, if we can just respond. And um, for the rest of us, I want us to all rise and to be in a posture where we are receiving, where we are in God's presence. And I just want us to be reminded. Next week, we're going to talk about something a little different. But for this week, the prayer is... God is the one who finished the great work that He began in your life. Take comfort. Find your reassurance. Find your rest. Find your security. Find your hope in Him. And maybe for some of us, we need to repent that we have been depending upon ourselves. That we have been taking His grace for granted. Or that we do feel like we can do this on our own for some reason. So I just want to give us an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to interact with your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit, lead me into repentance. Lead me into having greater trust and faith that my hope is not in this world, that there is a joy that is definitely worth it. So I want to give us an opportunity to do that before we move on to the next part of our worship.